Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network on Education. My name is Greg Soden, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Katherine Fishman Weaver and Jill Klingen, the co authors of Teaching Women's and Gender Studies, which includes separate middle school and high school editions. This episode focuses on the high school edition, which encourages teachers to incorporate women's and gender studies content, lessons, and projects into high school classrooms. There are seven projects organized around the four key concepts of introducing women's and gender studies for high school, intersectionality, history health policy changes, and a culminating project called Artivism. This book contains reproducible resources that any teacher in high school can use. Just a note for listeners who might also be interested in the middle school episode. Both episodes contain the same 16-minute introduction to the authors, so if you go to the middle school episode next, you can fast forward through the first 16 minutes to get straight to the middle school-specific conversation. Both editions of Teaching Women's and Gender Studies were released in 2023 by Rutledge's Eye on Education series. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Katherine Fishman-Weaver and Jill Klingen. Dr. Katherine Fishman-Weaver and Jill Klingen, thank you so much for joining me for this uh, conversation on New Books Network. Uh, It's a delight to have you both here. And I'm wondering if we can start off by, you know, having you both introduce yourselves a little bit to the audience out there so they know who you are and what you do. Dr. Fishman Weaver, do you want to go ahead and give us a start on that first? Sure. Thanks so much for having us, Greg. Um, So my name is Catherine Fishman Weaver. I use she, her pronouns. I'm an educator, a school leader, an author. Uh, my background is in public schools, particularly around work with neurodiverse students. Um, and currently, I serve as the executive director of Mizzou Academy, which is this wonderful global blended K-12 lab school where I work with amazing people like the two of you. Yes. <laughs> Additionally, I'm an associate teaching professor. My areas of expertise are on school leadership and community engagement. Um, and then I also serve as a court-appointed special advocate for youth who are navigating the foster care system. Fabulous. Jill, how about you? So I always wanted to be an English teacher. Like that was my dream ever since I was a little girl. Um, When I was in high school, my science teacher thought I should pursue another path. So um, this is evidence of how influential teachers can be. I I did. I diverted off that path, um, earned an undergraduate degree in psychology, started a master's program in psychology, and then I decided to go back to what my heart loved, um, which was English, and I earned a master's degree in English. 
So I've taught on the college level. I have homeschooled my daughter for a few years, and now I am an assistant professor of professional practice for the College of Education and Human Development at Mizzou and a department chair for Comp and Lit at Mizzou Academy. And this has really been um, such an amazing journey for me, and it's it's been the favorite thing that I've done. <laughs> it's career-wise. So. Well, and for the listeners out there, I do have to acknowledge what Catherine said, that we are actually all colleagues and we all work in the same school. But it is such a thrill to have you both here because as colleagues, I, I know you both on a personal level. We've collaborated on so many projects over the years. But you two have this amazing new project that you have done together, which I'm so excited because that's what brings us all together. You two have a a couple of new books that have come into the world recently. Uh, they are called Teaching Women's and Gender Studies, but one of the books focuses on grades 9 through 12, and the other focuses on middle school and grades 6 through 8. And before we dive into the books themselves, um, I'm super curious about your own backgrounds and interests in the content and material related to women's and gender studies in your own educational pathways, because um, this is an area in schools that I have seen taught in the public school system um, and in other school systems and private in the private world as well. But it feels like this is a, a, a an area that has a lot of potential for growth as far as curriculum goes. And I'm just curious about both of your pathways about learning about women's and gender studies in education and kind of what your origin and interest along that path has been like. You know, as I kind of look back at my pathway, I, I grew up in a family that was um, really interested in ways that we could make the world a better place that um, was committed to inclusion and to community service. Um, and my parents and my grandparents um, fostered that spirit within me. Um, but it wasn't until college when I learned about women's and gender studies as, as a field, as a discipline. Um, so during my undergraduate time at Mizzou, I changed my major a whole bunch of times. I wanted to study everything. And I kind of ended up studying everything as much as one can. Um, but three of the departments that stayed constant throughout, um, you know, all of my self-discovery in undergraduate years um, were women's and gender studies, sociology, and English. Um, and my women's and gender studies mentors were so important to my own development um, as a scholar, as a teach later as a teacher, um, as you know, the the kind of leader that I'm still trying to become. I remember when I learned about feminist scholarship as a discipline um, that I felt seen kind of in a way that I, I hadn't previously. Um, and also that I saw the world, you know, with a, a mindset that's that's persisted, you know, into today. My work with with those scholars, um, and we got to go back and talk to some of my teachers from undergraduate days uh, during the writing of this project, and that was really a treat. Um, but my work with those scholars really set me on my research and teaching pathways. So as I look at the different mm. projects I've engaged in, um, they're all connected to gender, to equity, to inclusion. Um, and a lot of that started when I was this wide-eyed, super optimistic, naive, goofy 
20 year old. And uh, Jill, tell me a little bit about, tell me a little bit about your, um, you know, your pathway through into this content. Well, you know, I was without ever knowing what the term meant. I think I was always interested in women's and gender studies. I was, you know, um, a voracious reader and I always was drawn to books with really strong female protagonists. And, um, you know, that's just, that's just what, what pulled me. Um, and, you know, as you know, even, you know, when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school, and then, um, and when I was in graduate school, I took my first feminist studies course and it just sparked my interest. It introduced all of these, um, new ideas to me that made a lot of the beliefs and ideas that I had, but didn't quite know how, how to articulate, just kind of help those click, click into space. And, um, you know, I just, I just remember studying in class and just thinking, um, oh, there's just nowhere in the world I would rather be than right here, right this second, like talking about this thing. And I think that just really propelled that interest more. And then, um, when I, you know, got involved in education, I could see, you know, and, and seeing my own kids and their courses that they were taking. And I just saw that there was a gap in students learning about women's and gender studies. And so we really see these books as a way to help students work toward justice and inclusion and representation um, in their own lives. And we're excited about that. <laughs> yeah, let's dive into these. Um, tell me a little bit about the origin of this project, because, you know, two books basically at the same time, this is not for the faint of heart. One book enough is enough uh, you know, as far as like, you know, the writing process is so difficult in the editing process. It's a, uh, it's a huge thing. It's a huge undertaking. So two books at once kind of blew me away whenever I heard about this. So I want to know about the, the, uh, the Genesis, like the origin of, you know, this idea that, that came to become two books in the world at the same time. So several years ago, we started developing a resource list for educators for Women's History Month. And that was always one of my very favorite projects to work on with Catherine. It was um, just so fun and inspiring to create lessons and activities for teachers to incorporate into their classrooms. It was um, it was a wonderful experience. And then one day, Catherine said to me, hey, what what if we expanded on these ideas and turned them into a book? And um, then we wrote the book and realized it was two books. <laughs> so so we did that. So it started out as one book and turned into two. <laughs> when we would work on the Women's History Month teaching resource, um, and also that you know that was a a favorite project for for me each spring with Jill as well. Um, that at the end of the project, the end of the resource list, we would always say. You know, this is work that is 365 days a year. This isn't work that only happens in March. Um, and we would encourage educators to to continue these lessons and to continue the themes of these lessons throughout the year. Uh, and then in March again, we would release, you know, kind of a new resource. And so Jill and I had talked about how can we grow this into something that is 365 days a year? I mean, we had a few ideas kind of early on, you know, is it a course? Is it a course we offer at our school? Um, and then is it a book? And and Jill and I both love books and writing um, so much. And so when we thought, well, maybe this is, you know, when it first started, one book, and we did some research to see, well, does the book already exist? 
Um, and the answer, you know, as far as we could find was no, um, there weren't books out there that gave, you know, kind of ready to use lesson plans and care notes for educators who wanted to engage deeply with women's and gender studies in the middle or high school classroom. You know, it's Toni Morrison who said, if there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, that you have to write it. And for Jill and me, you know, the same was true for there was this book that we wanted to teach and we wanted teachers to have and we couldn't find it anywhere. And so we felt we felt sort of this obligation to carry the work forward. Catherine, I'm curious about what is a well, like how prevalent women's and gender studies courses are in schools. What do you know about how much schools do or do not teach these areas of content from middle school through high school? What is going on out there that is happening versus what is not happening? In our research, we found very few middle and high schools were offering standalone courses on women's and gender studies. What was harder for us to investigate um, were units within often social studies or language arts courses um, or other kind of special topics courses. Um, so that, that's harder for us to investigate. You know, are there women's and gender studies units? Um, certainly we know that there are teachers who are bringing um, a background in women's and gender studies to their teaching of content um, and also to their pedagogical practices. Um, but as standalone resources or standalone courses, um, Jill and I couldn't find much in the middle and high school when we were doing kind of our, our review of the market, um, what other books exist that are like this. We found there's a lot of books out there that celebrate women leaders, biography books, lists of, you know, women who changed the world, women who changed the path of science, um, and this sort of thing, um, but not necessarily resources that were grounded in women's and gender studies as a discipline or feminist scholarship. I'm wondering about both of your uh, creative processes during the during the writing process. What was the what are some of the main memories that you both have about the writing and organization process behind you know outlining the chapters, figuring out the way these books are going to be put together, like what your collaborative process was going back and forth, what the process was like of getting like the guests that are strewn throughout the books. Um, Jill, maybe you want to go ahead and share some some of your major memories about some of those things. So I had never written a book before. So yeah. it was, uh, you know, it was equal parts scary and exciting. Some days more scarier, some days more exciting. But it was, and it was really intense because we wrote both books in less than a year. And so we would just kind of take a concept. <laughs> it was a lot. So we would just kind of take a concept and kind of talk through it and figure out, um, you know, what areas that we wanted to address. And then, you know, we would just kind of piecemeal sort of an outline on there. And then we would just both pick different areas um, to fill in on them. And we just kind of would just go back and forth with writing and then getting together and, and collaborating and, you know, just doing a lot of research and and lots and lots of writing. <laughs> One of the biggest memories was just the day that we figured out it was going to be like, we were like, we have two books. I mean, that was probably the out of all the days with all the many memories, that was probably the most <laughs> momentous day of like, wow, oh, wow, this is this is bigger than we thought it was. <laughs> Catherine, what are some of your major standout memories? Well, first, thank goodness for Google Docs. Like, I don't even know how I functioned in any area of my life um, 
better to Google Drive. Um, so the collaborative uh, potential that Google gave Jill and me to work in real time together was really critical for this project, um, for us to be able to be on the document at the same time and have live conversations um, about the content was really important. Um, so pretty early on, we decided that we wanted to utilize advisory editors. And I know we'll talk some more about that in this conversation, but just to introduce the idea, Jill and I, you know, we have, we have different lived experiences from each other and also some similar lived experiences from each other. And we knew that positionality mattered um, and we wanted to employ a, a multiplicity of voices to the greatest extent possible. And so as we were building out kind of this advisory editor board, um, one of the first people we reached out to was one of my mentor professors from undergraduate women's and gender studies days, and that's Dr. Elisa Glick, um, who is a, an English and women's and gender studies professor at Mizzou. And she graciously um, said yes to, to helping us. Um, she said, you know, like, like great teachers do, that she believed in the work and wanted to help us get there. And so we had sent her a draft of our first concept, so kind of the first couple chapters um, for her notes and feedback. And I remember, you know, Dr. Glick prints, prints things out and does notes in the margin in pen. And I went to her house and she wasn't home and it was like on an envelope on her front porch. And I was like, oh, you know, like <laughs> what does this great teacher think of our work? Um, and she had really important notes um, that challenged and pushed our thinking and that informed uh, our continued writing in the book, um, particularly around representation, um, trans inclusion, the, the scholarship that sort of the undergirds the whole book. It was just a really neat moment, I think, um, for both of us. And then, you know, for me, particularly since I had worked with this amazing teacher 20 years prior um, to be continuing to learn from from experts in the field as Jill and I were crafting these, what became two books. Well, let's move into a specific conversation related to just the grades nine through 12 book. So we're going to talk about the the middle school uh, book in a separate section, um, but let's go into nine through 12 grades specifically. So the first unit is about introducing students to the concepts found in the book. And I'm really excited to hear about, you know, how you feel that uh, you can propose these topics um, in a captivating and interesting way to high school age students. So how do you propose introducing women's and gender studies to high school age students? What is the, what's the major hook that you, uh, that you use to draw the students in? So I think with any content, you want to start with um, what students already know or think they already know or have already experienced. And so as we introduce, you know, what is feminist theory, what is women's and gender studies, we leverage the, the expertise and experience and wisdom that our students bring into the classroom and we build from there. Um, we also lean on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, particularly SDG 5. Um, which is on gender equality, equity, and, and justice. Uh, and so we use that as a hook into how these issues are both local and global, and then that's a thread that continues. Um, we also introduce early on our working definition of feminism, and then have students 
break that all apart um, and put it back together in ways that are meaningful to them. And then we can use that working definition throughout all the units. You know, I think one thing when we were, for both the middle school and the high school book, we felt like it was important for breaking down misconceptions about what women's and gender studies is. And also, I think it was really important for us to, you know, to create lessons that were interesting and compelling and that students could see their own stories in and their and see how they could impact change in their own communities. So to make it really personal was really important to us, not just like these big theories, um, you know, with these big ideas that don't apply to them. That's that's not what this is about. This is about how they can take these ideas of women's and gender studies and see their own stories and then the stories of their community and then impact change in their community. I think that was really important. And also just an important point to bring up, which I think has already been mentioned a little bit, is that these books are interdisciplinary. So, you know, for teachers that do not have, which I I don't know, honestly, I don't know of any school that does have a women's and gender studies course at school that these books can just be taken and used in all sorts of different classrooms, ELA classrooms, science classrooms, the arts, um, social studies. Um, you know, there are different, it doesn't have to be gone, you know, uh, through from the first lesson to the end. You can um, take out pieces that relate to what your students, um, what students are learning. And um, I think that's one of the really special things about this book is how it can be interwoven into so many different subjects. So I know as well that uh, the Sustainable Development Goals from the UN, we've used it in some certain courses that we've done uh, with our work at Mizzou. And I'm wondering like, if any of the lessons have been like tested and tried out and like if certain sections have been like experimented with. Uh, tell me a little bit about like some of the experimentation process. I'm really curious about that now. When we wrote the activities for our Women's History Month resource each year. Um, we had a number of schools that would run with those right away um, and would give us feedback. You know, our schools are, are forthcoming with feedback, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did some testing in that way. And then as Jill and I took the Women's History Month resource and developed that into into these two books, um, the activities that we carried forward were the ones that we had received the most compelling feed, feedback on from our partner schools. As we were working on the books, and I can't remember um, exactly where we were in the process, it feels sort of like midway through the writing process. Jill and I also hosted a Women's and Gender Studies webinar with our partner schools. Um, and we had a number of international teachers uh, join us and we talked through some of the lessons. Um, we tested them with educators, which is always really fun as well. Um, to get some feedback. We heard uh, the activities that they were doing in their schools related to women's and gender studies and justice work um, kind of more broadly defined. Uh, and so that all informed the book as well. Catherine, can you tell me a little bit about how you have the book broken down in the sections and like what readers can expect uh, as far as the organization of the book and how it goes? Yeah, I'm really proud of the structure of the book. Um, there was a lot of thought that went into what are the different components that will make this book um, effective for educators and students, but also supportive um, for everyone who's engaging in, in this challenging and, and really important work. So each concept opens with a foreword by an advisory editor. 
Um, then we move into kind of an overview, which that's always helpful for me as a teacher. And the overview outlines the objectives, the essential questions for scholars, reflective questions for educators, because we know that whenever we teach, um, we certainly learn as much as we teach. Um, the lesson titles and the synthesis project. So it's kind of like a pedagogical roadmap for the journey we're on together. Then Jill and I both separately offer section dedications. Um, and these dedications share a little bit more about our personal stories, right? So the people and communities who inspire us to do this work. Next, there's a care letter for educators who are facilitating the content. Um, and that is a really important addition to the book. Um, we know that this work can be difficult, it can be charged, um, and we want, and we also know that we won't be physically right beside everyone who's implementing the book. Um, and so we wanted to write in a way that gave as much care and support as we could um, in a book that, that a reader is going to interact with in that way. Then we're into the content. Um, so after the care letter, um, each unit opens with an activate prior knowledge kind of activity. So that's where we draw directly on the wisdom and lived experiences of the students in our classroom as a hook into whatever it is we're going to study. Um, and then the units have three to four lessons. Um, there are two units per concept. And the concept ends with a synthesis project um, where students get to speak to you know the lessons and the concepts that mattered the most to them and put them together in a way that's meaningful and and hopefully that points our world towards greater justice wonderful um we already talked a little bit about the why women's and gender studies unit which is the first one that's in the book um jill i'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about section two intersectionality right so in intersectionality we uh bring up the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and just about these ideas about how the way that um, your identity, your experience and social issues and where you fit in social space are just all informed by these overlapping uh, systems of power, privilege and oppression, depending on where you are in that intersection and what sort of things are heading toward you. Um, and so we just believe that working toward a more just world really requires just a good understanding of the complex ways that oppression privilege and identity are layered and how they're intersectional so in unit three which is our first unit on intersectionality uh students students explore bell hooks work on center and margins mm. which is a criticism of how feminist theory often just centers the experiences of white middle and upper class women and rarely includes the people who live in the margins, the women of color, and then how women who are in the center should be the ones who move out toward the margins. And that is the way that is, you know, we can end um, sexist oppression is if we um, notice what all those multiple systems of oppression are and then work outward, work to the margins to, um, you know, identify those issues. And and then in the next um, section in this, uh, you know, we talk about uh, Patricia Hill Collins' work on being an outsider within, and that is about specific racialized um, and gendered contexts that Black women navigate in society. So they connect her uh, ideas, which are really rich and layered, um, then on a practical level, they connect those two excerpts from the Combahee River Collective Statement, which is a really critical and important reading on Black feminism 
intersectionality and identity politics. And then the unit also explores the gendered impacts of climate change. Mm. This is something that I had not thought of on, um, just on a really deep level before and in doing so much research and exploring um, the, you know, UN sustainable development goals and just learning about how, because of climate change, how women and girls are disproportionately more likely to die, to fall into poverty, how they, um, are more, can be more victims of gender-based violence. Uh, I hadn't ever thought of before about how, because of climate change, if water is not as accessible, women and girls have to walk further to get that water. When they walk further to get that water, they can run into more risk of being, you know, exposed to violence. And so there are just so many different ways that climate change affects women and girls disproportionately. And so students learn about this. And they also, one thing I, I love about this part of that lesson is students learn about young people who are leading the way toward climate justice, which I think um, is inspiring for students to be able to see that, you know, this isn't just a thing that adults do, that students are making at, like incredibly impactful strides in uh, making changes for climate justice. Yeah, the ways that things that everything is connected to everything else is so fascinating in uh, in what you just said in that summary of that of that chapter about the way that everything has like its uh, web and it's connecting uh, all across the different waves uh, of civilization and societies. Tell me about something that you uh, that you really love about uh, the personal is political. I really enjoyed this section in Unit Four uh, in the intersectionality. I was wondering if you had any comments on what you loved about that section too. Absolutely. Um, so. Within this unit, we study food insecurity as a feminist issue. Mm. Um, and just as Jill was talking about how, you know, as we look at climate change and how you were talking about this web that connects us all um, across issues and human experiences, um, hunger and food insecurity is a part, a critical part of that web as well. And so, and it's it's also a passion area of mine. And so I was really excited to get to engage in this work with Jill, where we encourage students to look deeply at issues of food insecurity. So that's SDG 2, zero hunger, um, and to think through ways that they can impact change at the local or global level. And one of the things I want to share about that work is that this work may be very personal for the students who are engaging in this content and the educators who are facilitating it. And so as Jill and I were thinking constantly as we were writing about how can we how can we give care and space, um, recognizing that this work is personal and it's political um, and it's action-based, um, we, we tried to write that into to the lessons. And so I I just have this sense of hope as I think about young people around the world um, engaged in work to end food insecurity at the local level and the the ripple effect that that'll have at the global level. And we've seen it. We've hmm. seen it in our schools um, where students are hosting food drives, serving at soup kitchens, serving at the food bank, um, and, and all that work matters. And that work is not separate from the work of women's and gender studies. So I really love that in Unit 4. I love that. I'm wondering about the the motherland um, section of the book as well. Motherland history, health, and policy change. This is such an interesting section too. Tell me a little bit about it. 
The one unit um, in this section is about maternal health, and uh, we talk about it as a fundamental human right, um, which is related to SDG3, and how it is essential to reducing poverty and also achieving gender equality. Um, almost 300,000 women die of maternal health complications every year, and a majority of these deaths are preventable. And most of these deaths occur in low-income countries, and we talk about that in this unit and the people that are working to make um, to bring about change in helping to reduce that maternal mortality rate and have better health outcomes for um, for parents and their babies. And also, but also we talk about how um, even in middle and upper-income countries, such as the United States, maternal deaths are rising. Um, in the United States particularly, uh, and that is due to systemic racism in marginalized communities. Um, the health disparities map against racial lines with Black and Indigenous communities experiencing the greatest risk for, for maternal and health uh, out, infant health outcomes. And structural racism is a real, it is a key barrier to these families in getting the help that they need in being um, believed when they are experiencing symptoms that doctors may just discredit them for and not not believe them. Um, there are just a lot, a lot of things that are happening um, that relate to these uh, childbirth complications uh, in uh, communities of color that um, white families just don't experience to the that extent. And there are also many health disparities in maternal care in the LGBTQIA plus communities. So we talk about that also in this section. It's a heavy unit, yeah. but um, as in everything that we discuss in this book, we also, it's really important for us to come at it from a space of radical hope so that students learn about this heavy topic, but they also learn about women all over the world, women in the United States um, who are working to improve maternal health. And they're also challenged to consider maternal health issues in their own community and how they might be able to bring about change. So I used to be a birth doula. Oh, and cool. so, yes. So after my son was born, I had a doula at the birth of my son, and then I, I became a birth doula for several years. And so and one of my very best friends was my birth doula, and she's a midwife now. And so this issue is just very near to my heart because I was able to see um, this in my own community that I was working with. And it just, it made a really huge impact on me. And so uh, I was really passionate about, about this unit and doing research on it. And I feel really, you know, passionate toward making changes in this area. Fantastic. In motherland um, is on policy change. And, you know, that that's some of my background. So my PhD is in, in educational leadership and policy analysis in this unit, and it's not just in this unit, because as we've already talked about, everything is connected. Um, we encourage students to think about action, advocacy, inclusion, to think critically about whose stories are told and whose stories are missing. Uh, and so the section opens with some learning about Claudette Colvin. Um, so Claudette Colvin is the teenager who helped to desegregate Montgomery buses. Uh, she was arrested for refusing to give up her seat nine months before Rosa Parks. Um, and, and a lot of us and a lot of our students haven't heard her story, and her story is important to be told and studied um, and played a key role in the landmark lawsuit where, where Colvin served as a plaintiff. 
we, we study about Colvin, this teenager who was learning about women's and gender studies and black history in school and says that's what inspired her civil disobedience to not give up her seat on the way home. Um, and she was arrested for this and she, she never had her record cleared even after the, the lawsuit was settled until in 2021 when a judge expunged her record. And so we use this story to talk about intergenerational healing and to talk about the long process towards justice mm. um, and who are the leaders and the elders in our community um, who can help show us the way um, to not give up hope and how can we you know always endeavor to to follow in their footsteps and so it's a really powerful story to begin thinking about intergenerational healing and whose stories get told and whose stories are missing that we need to then go and seek out. I'm wondering if uh, if the both of you have a favorite activity for the classroom in the book that you wanted to uh, to mention, like what is your favorite thing to have students do from the uh, the high school edition of this book? I mentioned this earlier, but student study youth activists who are on the forefront of climate justice. And that is honestly one of my very favorite parts of this book is just how students can look at their own communities and how climate change is affecting people, particularly people in marginalized um, community, marginalized areas of their communities, and then just how they can themselves create um, a plan for how they can advance intersectional climate justice in their local community. I think that's something that students um, can really uh, get on board with because it's something that a lot of students feel a lot of passion about. And then just to be able to take these ideas and to be inspired by other young people and then to distill those ideas into ways that they can make personal change, I think is uh, is really inspiring. So that's one of my favorites. I love that through, through this book and the high school book in particular, um, that students get to learn about different ways of knowing and different ways to engage in research. Uh, and so I know when I was a high school teacher that much of what my students knew about research, they had learned in their science classes and they had learned about the scientific method and a particular positivist approach to research um, that's linear, that you can graph the results. And that's how that's how you know if a thing is true or not true. Um, and the scientific method has, you know, has a purpose in our world and also there are other ways to advance knowledge and to research on an issue. Uh, and just as women's and gender studies is often a gap in middle and high school curriculum, so too I think are qualitative methods. And so throughout our activities, we challenge students to think critically about who is seen as, as the knower um, and how do they know the things that they know and how can we report on those? Uh, we celebrate that story is data, that story um, can move move us towards action. Um, and I just think having exposure to qualitative and feminist research methods as a high school student is incredibly empowering. And so I really look forward to high school students who've thought deeply about this through our lessons or, or you know, through the teaching in their schools, like what work are they gonna go on to do um, in, in their post-secondary lives that I think could absolutely change our world. Something that I really love in the high school edition is the pro-seminar section on artivism. And I love the term, by the way. And Jill, I'm wondering if you can tell listeners a little bit about the 
artivism project that's uh, that concludes and kind of is near the end of the book? I would love to talk about the artivism project. So artivism is a new term that I learned as I was researching these books. Um, you know how dictionaries or whatever have like a word of the year. I would say that would have that year for that run writing those books, artivism was one of my favorite words just because of everything that encompasses it. So basically um, uh, the poet Amanda Gorman says that all art is political and artivism is basically an expression of that statement. So artivism is the combination of two words, art plus activism. And artivists use their creative work to challenge racism and sexism, uh, discrimination, injustice, and other social inequalities. And they not only expose those inequalities, but then they use their creative work to reimagine a new creative, more positive narrative. So I love the two parts of that, the exposure, and then and this is the new thing that, that we are creating with this. And artivism can take pretty any form, um, slam poetry, music, dance, performance art, street art, graphic design, any form of creative expression can become artivism. It's impossible, right, to say that you have a favorite unit, but this, this is one of my favorites. Jill and I, in the whenever we talk about these books, we always talk about gratitude and the scholars that, that we got to learn from, um, either personally or through our research. And as I think about the artivism unit, I just feel this, this swelling of gratitude for the amazing art educators uh, that I got to that I've gotten to learn with throughout my careers. Um, so when I first became a teacher, I taught for a public K-8 school in Oakland, California, and our art teacher was Miranda Bergman. Um, she is one of the amazing muralists behind the San Francisco Women's Mural, Maestra Peace, which we get to teach um, in this book. But also, as I was becoming a teacher, I was learning directly from her. And so as I think about what teaching and pedagogy mean, I can't separate it from art and from activism. So one of the first projects I got to work on with Miranda was a peace mural. Um, so with our K-1-2 students, we got to educate our community in, in Deep East Oakland about nonviolence through, through art, through creating a mural. Um, in the high school setting, I worked with Sharon Hyatt-Wade, who's an amazing um, public school, high school art teacher, um, and has continued to, to work with, with my colleagues and me um, in a number of projects. So one of the resources that we have in the artivism unit is a, a viewing protocol. So how can we read images for voice, story, meaning, um, and purpose? And as we were working on that, uh, you know, Sharon and Miranda were the voices in my head. Um, they're the ones who taught me how to engage in this work and then to get to teach it forward. Um, that particular resource, the viewing protocol, is one that I hear from educators as they use our books that they're using across kind of language arts, arts, science, social studies, um, this idea that we can read images in very critical ways, um, that they carry messages and stories. Catherine, something that comes up regularly throughout this conversation is uh, gratitude from you. And I'm wondering, uh, since the, since guests play such a huge role in these books, if there's any shout outs uh, that you'd like to give as far as people who helped you along the way with the high school edition that, uh, that you felt deserved some extra attention. Oh, there's so many. 
So we use this um, advisory editor model, which I just love. Um, our editor at Routledge, Lauren Davis, is phenomenal. Um, and she just kept saying yes to, to all the ideas we emailed to her. Um, and one of those was about the, the use of advisory editors. Um, and so Jill and I got to think together about who are the, the teachers in our own lives, the mentors and colleagues um, who we wanted to learn from and with. Um, and so I'll share kind of a list of just who were the advisory editors on the high school book. And then I know Jill wants to share some, some personal stories. So Dr. Elisa Glick, we talked about already. Um, Dr. Adrian Clifton, um, she and I have worked together for, for 20 years now, I think. Wow. In a number of different projects, we were PhD classmates together. Um, Dr. Dina Lane Bonds, um, another PhD classmate of mine who's doing really important policy and justice work. Um, Stephanie Dominguez, who all three of us have worked through, worked with um, through her work in schools in Brazil. Um, and then Lisa DeCastro, who was a colleague of mine when I became a brand new teacher. She and I worked together with Miranda Bergman on that peace mural. So that was our advisory editor team for the high school book. Well, I think, you know, Dr. Adrienne Clifton, she is a colleague here at Mizzou Academy and just her scholarly and lived experience in intersectionality just really provided such a rich um, narrative and just rich experience that she's had both in her own lived experiences and then all of the amazing research that she has done in this area as well. She, uh, we went out to uh, dinner with her towards the end of the book or when the book was, I can't remember, um, but she had read, she had read through the book. So I guess, I think we were in the process of it, it hadn't gone to print yet, but she, she had read through it and she was the first person who actually outside of Catherine and me read the book. And she said that it was, it changed her life. And I just remember just that moment. It was one of those like time slows down, beautiful, powerful moments for me, because that was the dream when we were writing this book is that we want it to be life-changing. And um, just to hear her say that was, um, was just super and super inspiring. And while I don't know, um, personally, Dr. Dina Lane Bonds, I have just been inspired by just the work that she's done um, with her Policy Justice Institute. And just, I love her ideas of how important it is to promote um, equitable and inclusive teaching and how that just needs to be the fundamental space um, that educating comes from. And just she, just her reimagining of a new narrative of equity and inclu inclusivity is really inspiring to me. So two books, Teaching Women's and Gender Studies, grades nine through 12 and grades six through eight. Huge, huge undertaking, massive accomplishment, so much work. Now what I want to know is where next. Catherine, what are you working on that you're excited about for the future? Oh, what a fun question. Um, well, as an educator, we're in a new um, school year for our the schools we serve in South America. Um, and we're in a new semester for our schools that we serve um, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and so, you know, with that newness comes the sense of possibility and hope. As a writer, I'm working on two projects. Um, so one, I'm kind of always working on um, a collection of poetry uh, that I continue to, to chip away at and work at over time. I don't know what, what will ever come of this, um, but it brings me a lot of joy. Poetry is my first literary love. 
Um, and then I'm also working on um, my first book was on wholehearted teaching. It was a longitudinal study uh, with a group of really amazing young people. Um, I started working with them when they were juniors in high school, and we continued working together uh, through their college experience. Uh, this was my dissertation work, and then it, it continued, and it led to this framework for how I think about teaching, learning, and leadership. And so over the last eight years or so, I've been looking at that framework and thinking critically about how does it apply to school leadership today? And what does it even mean to be a school leader today? And so the other writing project that's underway for me is on wholehearted school leadership and how can I use the lessons um, from that first project um, forward as we think about leadership. How about you, Jill? What do you got going on? What, what's, what are you excited about for next? So, well, first, I just have to say thank you for doing um, this interview with us because, um, well, for many reasons, but one is that it's inspiring to me to think how, what might I do in the future, in the future with more of this work? So, um, you know, I, we wrote these books and then I, uh, when we were going to do this interview, I was like, what was in them again? <laughs> and so, I mean, I knew, but you know, I just hadn't, it just had been like saturated our brains for so long and then had this little break, break from them. So just being able to revisit them and to talk to you about it and talk with Catherine about it has been really inspiring. So thank you, because I don't know what that might spark. Um, it, like Catherine said, we're in the beginning of a new semester. I'm also working on revising one of my courses, Composition and Literature 1B. So that's something that I'm I'm in the middle of right now. Um, on kind of a, a fun level, I'm doing um, some storytelling and creative writing for a local magazine, which I'm really enjoying. I live in the Kansas City area, and I get to talk to amazing people and write about people in Kansas City community and learn about them and their families and what they're doing to contribute to our community. Um, I'm also learning about and writing about some really amazing nonprofit groups in Kansas City that I didn't even know existed. So that has been incredibly inspiring as well. And then I'm also just doing some personal work and personal writing work on which I've been doing for a while now on um, just exploring this concept and actually a conversation with Catherine was the impetus for this, um, finding beauty and poetry in all moments. Um, you know, you have those moments where it's easy to find beauty and poetry, but also just looking for those moments in mundane moments and moments where beauty and poetry are a little bit harder to find. So. I love it. Well, Dr. Catherine Fishman Weaver and Jill Klingen, authors of Teaching Women's and Gender Studies, grades 9 through 12 and grades 6 through 8, classroom resources on resistance, representation, and radical hope from Rutledge. Thank you so much for being here for these special two-part episodes. And uh, it's been a real pleasure learning from you and hearing about the books and seeing the ways that both of you are inspired and light up when it comes to this content. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that listeners out there who will find these books relevant and useful to their own lives will go ahead and check them out. So thank you so much for being here. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank, thank you. Great. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 